Book Two, Chapter Two of The History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. The History of Pompey the Little, or The Life and Adventures of a Lapdog, by Francis Coventry. Book Two, Chapter Two. A Long Chapter of Characters. The post-chaise stopped in a genteel street in London, and Pompey was introduced into decent lodgings, where everything had an air of politeness, yet nothing was expensive. The rooms were hung with Indian paper, the beds were Chinese, and the whole furniture seemed to show how elegant simplicity can be under direction of taste. Tea was immediately ordered, and the two ladies sat down to refresh themselves after the fatigue of their journey and began to talk over the adventures they had met with at the bath. They remembered many agreeable incidents, which had happened in that great rendezvous of pleasure, and ventured to laugh at some follies of their acquaintance, without severity or ill-nature. These two ladies were born of a good family, and had received a genteel education. Their father, indeed, left them no more than six thousand pounds each, but, as they united their fortunes, and managed their affairs with frugality, they made a creditable figure in the world, and lived in intimacy with people of the greatest fashion. It will be necessary, for the sake of distinction, to give them names, and the reader, if he pleases, may call them Theodosia and Aurora. Theodosia, the eldest, was advancing towards forty, an age when personal charms begin to fade, and women grow indifferent, at least, who have nothing better to supply the place of them but Theodosia was large possessed of all those good qualities which render women agreeable without beauty. She was affable and easy in her behaviour, well-bred without falsehood, cheerful without levity, polite and obliging to her friends, civil and generous to her domestics. Nature had given her a good temper, and education had made it an agreeable one. She had lived much in the world, without growing vain or insolent improved her understanding by books, without any affectation of wit or science, and loved public places, without being a slave to pleasure. Her conversation was always engaging, and often entertaining. Her long commerce with the world had supplied her with a fund of diverting remarks on life, and her good sense enabled her to deliver them with grace and propriety. Aurora, the youngest sister, was in her four-and-twentieth year, and imagination cannot possibly form a finer figure than she was, in every respect. Her beauty, now in its highest lustre, gave that full satisfaction to the eye which younger charms rarely inspire. She was tall and full-formed, but with the utmost elegance and symmetry in all her limbs, and a certain majesty, which resulted from her shape, was accompanied with a most peculiar sweetness of face. For though she had all the charms, she had none of the insolence of beauty. As if these uncommon perfections of nature were not sufficient to procure her admirers enough, she had added to them the most winning accomplishments of art. She danced and sung, and played like an angel. Her voice naturally clear, full, and melodious, had been improved under the best Italian masters, and she was ready to oblige people with her music, on the slightest intimation that it would be agreeable without any airs of shyness and unseasonable modesty. Indeed, affectation never entered into any one of her gestures, and whatsoever she did was with that generous freedom of manner 
which denotes a good understanding, as well as an honest heart. Her temper was cheerful in the highest degree, and she had a most uncommon flow of spirits and good humour, which seldom deserted her in any place or any company. At a ball she was extremely joyous and spirited, and the pleasure she gave to her beholders could only be exceeded by that unbounded happiness with which she inspired her partner. Yet though her genius led her to be lively, and a little romantic, whoever conversed with her in private admitted her good sense, and heard reflections from her, which plainly showed she had often exercised her understanding on the most serious subjects. A woman so beautiful in her person, and excellent in her accomplishments, could not fail of attracting lovers in great abundance, and as the characters of some of her admirers may perhaps not be unentertaining, we will give the reader a little sketch of two of them, from among a great variety. And first, let us pay our compliments to Count Tag, who had merited a title by his exploits, which perhaps is not the most usual step to honour, but always most respectable whenever it happens. Tis true he had no patent to show for his nobility, which depended entirely on the arbitrium popularis ori, the fickleness of popular applause, but the same arts which had procured him his title he trusted to for the preservation of it. He had indeed taken great pains to be a coxcomb of distinguished reputation, and by the help of uncommon talents this way was now arrived at the full extent of his wishes. Having established a large acquaintance among people of fashion, who admitted him for the sake of laughing at him, he really fancied himself one of their number, and had long ago thought proper to forget his family and primeval meanness. But that the reader may know by what steps he rose to the conspicuous station of ridicule he now possessed, let us trace him in his progress to it. Count Tag was the son of a brewer in a great market-town, who, having grown rich in trade, was seized with the unfortunate ambition of breeding up his son a gentleman, for which purpose he sent him first to a public school, and afterwards to the University of Oxford. Being here on a level with people much his superiors, the young gentleman learned to grow fond of great company, and very early began to calculate the degree of his happiness by the number of his fashionable acquaintance. At last his father died, and left him a fortune of about eight thousand pounds. Upon the news whereof, he immediately transported himself from Oxford to London, resolving to make a bold push, as it is called, to introduce himself into life. He had a strong ambition of becoming a fine gentleman, and cultivating an acquaintance with people of fashion, which he esteemed the most consummate character attainable by man, and to that he resolved to dedicate his days. As his first essay, therefore, he presented himself every evening in a side-box at one of the playhouses, where he was ready to enter into conversation with anybody that would afford him an audience, but was particularly assiduous in applying himself to young noblemen and men of fortune, whom he had formerly known at school or at the university. By degrees he got footing in two or three families of quality, where he was sometimes invited to dinner, and having learnt the fashionable topics of discourse, he studied to make himself agreeable, by entertaining them with the current news of the town. He had the first intelligence of a marriage or an intrigue, knew to a moment when the breath went out of a nobleman's body, and published the scandal of a masquerade or a redotta sooner by half an hour at least than any other public talker in London. He had a conspicuous fluency of language, which made him embellish every subject he undertook, 
and a certain art of talking as minutely and circumstantially on the most trivial subjects as on those of the highest importance. He would describe a straw or a pimple on a lady's face, with all the figures of rhetoric, by which he persuaded many people to believe him a man of great parts, and surely no man's impertinence ever turned to better account. As he constantly attended Bath and Tunbridge, and all the public places, he got easier access to the tables of the great, and by degrees insinuated himself into all the parties of the ladies, among whom he began to be received as a considerable genius, and quickly became necessary in all their drums and assemblies. Finding his schemes thus succeed almost beyond his hopes, he now assumed a higher behaviour, and began to fancy himself a man of quality from the company he kept. With this view, he thought proper to forget all his old acquaintance, whose low geniuses left them grovelling in obscurity, while his superior talents had raised him to a familiarity with lords and ladies. If, therefore, any old friend, presuming on their former intimacy, ventured to accost him in the park, he made a formal bow, and begged pardon for leaving him, but really Lady Betty or Lady Mary was just entering them all. In short, he always proportioned his respect to the rank and fortunes of his company. He would desert a commoner for a lord, a lord for an earl, an earl for a marquis, and a marquis for a duke. Having thus enrolled himself in his own imagination among the nobility, it was not without reason that people gave him the style and title of Count Tag, thinking it a pity that such a genius should be called by the ordinary name of his family. To say that this gentleman was in love would be too great an abuse of language, for he was in reality incapable of loving anybody but himself. But vanity and the mode often made him affect attachments to women of celebrated beauty, from whose acquaintances he thought he could derive a credit to himself. This was his motive for appearing one of the admirers of Aurora, whose charms were conspicuous enough to excite his pride, and that was the only passion which the Count ever thought of gratifying. He knew how to counterfeit raptures which he never felt, and had all the language of love, without any of its sentiment. The other admirer of Aurora, whose character we likewise promised to draw, was one in all respects the reverse of Count Tag, and may very well serve as his contrast. He was a young nobleman about her own age, blessed with every personal accomplishment that could render him agreeable, and every good quality that could make him beloved. If an excellent understanding, improved by competent reading, if the most uncommon integrity of mind, joined with the greatest candour and sensibility of heart, if a soul passionately devoted to the love of truth, which abhorred falsehood and detested affectation, if all these perfections can render any one the object of esteem, they all united in forming the character of this amiable young nobleman. But to esteem him only was paying him but half his due. There was something so very open and sincere in his looks, so winning in his conversation, and striking in all his actions, that nobody ever departed from him without a thorough love and admiration of him. He had the most agreeable manner of address, improved but not corrupted by the civilities of the world, a uniform, unaffected, natural gentility, which put mere politeness out of countenance, and left artificial complacence at a distance. In a word, he had the most cordial warmth of heart, the greatest generosity of sentiment, and the truest equanimity of temper, upon all occasions in life. 
Being inspired with a passion for an agreeable woman, he was neither ashamed to own it, nor yet did he use the ridiculous elogiums with which coxcombs talk of their mistresses when their imaginations are heated with wine. He did not compare her to the Venus of Medicis, or run into any of those artificial raptures which are almost always counterfeited, but whenever he mentioned her name he spoke the language of his heart, and spoke of her always with a manliness that testified the reality and sincerity of his passion. It was impossible for a woman not to return the affections of so deserving a lover. Aurora was happy to be the object of his addresses, and met them with becoming zeal. End of Book Two, Chapter Two